I've got some kids that are upset with me because we didn't get the prize. I was just trying to be generous. So remember that for next week. We are going to be reading from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and Rhoda is going to read our scripture for us. And when she's done, I'd like us all to say together, this is the word of God. If you have your Bible, if you have a device, I hope you'll follow along. Good morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Let's say it together. This is the, the word, word of God. God. Amen. Thank you, Rhoda. This morning we begin our series, as Andreas has told us, All for Christ. And you can see we have this uh, new logo that we're using. Uh, this series is the culmination of a lot of discussions, a lot of meetings, a lot of hard work as we have sought to crystallize and clarify what we are about as a church. And we have decided to use this simple, short phrase. Uh, and if you've, ever, if you've ever used a magnifying glass to try and burn a leaf or something and bringing that light of the sun into focus. And this is what we're trying to do with this phrase and with this series and as a church. We are trying to bring focus to who we are, to what we do, to what we are about. And we're hoping that this phrase can help us to capture that in a very simple and memorable way. What's interesting about this phrase is that you can actually think of it from four different angles, four different lenses that you can look at and see this phrase. The first one, perhaps the most obvious, is that we would be people as followers of Jesus who surrender all for Christ. This is what Jesus has called us to do. This is not some uh, radical, extra-biblical message that we're bringing. This is the message of Jesus, that we would take up our cross and surrender all for Christ. That's one angle. But there's a second one, and Andreas alluded to this this morning as well, and that is that as a church, we are all together for Christ. To be a Christian is not just to be an island. It's not just to be an individual believer. To be a Christian is to be brought into the family of God with all of the blessings and responsibilities that that brings. 
We don't want to be a church where we come and have no sense of togetherness, no sense of responsibility to one another. We want to understand this biblical calling that as believers, we are all together for Christ. Then there's another angle that we can look at this phrase from, and that is that we want to reach all for Christ. This is the biblical vision. The Bible says that God wills that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So as we think about global missions, our desire is to reach all for Christ. We want to be part of that work to get the gospel into every corner of this world so that there's nowhere in the world where people haven't heard about Jesus. And in our local community, we want to reach all for Christ, locally and globally, and that's the third angle. And then there's one more that we can remember from this phrase, and I do hope that you'll remember these four things. All for Christ means that everything we do and everything we are is all for Christ's glory. That's what it's about. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. And we want the whole world to know him and to glorify him. And we want him to be glorified in our lives and in our church. So all for Christ, seeking to bring a crystallized vision of who we are and what we do with these four angles that I'll hope, I hope you'll remember. Well, one of the ways that I like to remember these four angles is to use the shape of the cross. A cross has four points, four sides, if you will, and we can actually fit these four things into this picture of the cross. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, number one, there is a downward direction to the Christian life. It's a humbling of ourselves. It's a surrendering of ourselves which is very much a part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so that's the downward side of the cross. But then there's the outward directions of the cross. So we can put these uh, next two in there, all together for Christ on the right side of the cross, reaching all for Christ on the left side of the cross. And then of course the upward direction of the Christian life in which we are seeking to glorify God. I love this shape of the cross, and when I think about what does it mean to be a disciple, I find these four things really simplify. This is what it means to be a disciple. There's this downward, humbling, surrendering of myself in which I'm trusting in Christ and I'm dependent on Christ. There's this outward direction, both towards my church family. I have responsibilities towards my church family. I need my church family to minister to me. And then there's the other direction in which God calls us as followers of Jesus to, to follow in his footsteps, to, to take on his mission to reach all for Christ. And then there's the upward direction of the life of discipleship in which we want to glorify God, we want to praise God, we want to make him known in the world. This, of course, fits quite well with the discipleship path that we introduced last year in which we have our cross, and to the right of the cross we have this idea of discipling others, growing others in the faith, as well as ourselves growing in the faith together as believers. And on the left side of the cross, we have those who are separated and searching, uh, and we want to reach those with the good news of Jesus. I'm hoping you can see how these things tie together, and I'm hoping this provides simplicity and clarity as to who we are as a church, and today, we want to focus on the first of the four angles of all for Christ, and it is this, that we would surrender all for Christ. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I want us to see in this passage that there are four ways that we can and should, must 
surrender to Jesus Christ. Four ways in which we must, we can. It's our privilege to surrender to Jesus Christ. So we begin in verse one. With Jesus standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or more commonly known as the Sea of Galilee, so common in the Lord's ministry in the four gospels. He's standing there by the lake, and we find that there are people crowding around him. In fact, we find that this crowd must have been so large and pressing against him so much that he decides to get into a boat that happened to be there by the water's edge. Now we find this same thing happen in Mark chapter four and in Matthew chapter 13. And in those two cases, it literally tells us that the crowd was so big that Jesus chose to get into a boat. If you go back to Mark chapter three, he'd actually already mentioned the boat thing, I, th I think to Peter, and said, hey, you know, if the crowds get too big, I got this great idea, I'm gonna get into a boat and teach from there. You can imagine how well this would work. He gets in, into a boat, uh, maybe he, he gets out into the water, maybe 50 feet, maybe a little bit more than that, drops the anchor, and then the crowds can gather on the shore. And in the Sea of Galilee, in many of those places, the shore slopes upward into hills. And you can imagine if there was any kind of onshore breeze, this was perfect. They didn't have amplification, but he could sit out in that boat and preach the word and thousands of people could see and hear him as he taught in that manner. That's what's gonna happen here. There's a, a large crowd, clearly. They're pressing against Jesus. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you might be thinking what I, what I automatically thought, and that is that, oh, well, they were pressing against Jesus, pushing through the crowd, trying to get close because they wanted a miracle. And there are times in the Gospels when we find that's exactly what the crowd was looking for. They were coming for a miracle. They were sick. They knew someone who was sick. They wanted to see something that they'd heard Jesus could do. And so people pressed against him and, and the crowd surrounded him simply looking for that miracle. But I want us to see in the text today that that is not what this crowd was doing. Did you notice that? This is not a crowd who's, who's thrill-seeking. They're not looking to see a miracle. They're not trying to egg Jesus on and say, hey, Jesus, do something cool. It's so clear. In verse one, they were listening to the word of God. Why was the crowd pressing in? Why did Jesus have to get into a boat? Why were there so many? And the answer is simple. They wanted to hear the word of God. I love that. And it brings me to our first surrender, and that is that we must be people who surrender to the word of God. Notice that when Jesus was speaking, it's not like Jesus had a big stereo and was playing the audio Bible. They were listening to the word of God because they were listening to Jesus speak. When Jesus spoke, Scripture came out of his mouth. The divine word of God came out of his mouth. In fact, the apostle John would later write that Jesus is the word of God. That's who he is. His very nature is, is the expression, the communication of who God is. Anything that came out of the mouth of Jesus was the pure and divine 
word of God. And this crowd, though they might not have fully understood that, sensed in his teaching something that created a hunger in them. It drew them to hear more, to want to understand more. They recognized that Jesus had words of truth. They needed them. I would say the first reason, the biggest reason perhaps, that keeps us from taking on a biblical vision of the Christian life, from understanding what Jesus calls us to when he says, come follow me, is that we have not taken his word seriously. We have not taken the Bible seriously. How many of us take time daily to open the book, to read God's word as the precious words of life recognizing that these words are life-changing, that this is God himself speaking to us? Do we come on Sundays as God's word is opened and preached, hungry and anticipating hearing, not some preacher. In fact, we don't want to hear preachers who aren't actually preaching the word. But hearing God's word preached and declared through a life who's been impacted by it. Brothers and sisters, we need to be surrendered to the word of God. When is the last time we sat and listened to God's word preached and the spirit of God just like a sword drove that word into our souls and we knew that we had to make a change in our life? Or he opened our eyes as we sang this morning to see something new about Christ or about God that led us to worship him more fully. When's the last time we opened our own Bibles, maybe in a moment of anxiety or depression or facing difficulties in our life, and we opened God's word and we found words of comfort, of reassurance? This is what God's word should be to us. And we need to, yes, we need to surrender to the word of God. I wonder if in our culture here, where uh, the word of God has been in some cases misused, where people have grown up in environments where rules and legalism have been emphasized. That for some of us, we, we, we have this tendency to, to lean away from, to, to, to step away from anything that seems like, uh, like literature, like stipulations, like things we should read and things we should do, and yet it's such a shame because it's through God's word that we are transformed. Jesus could say of himself later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A few chapters later, as he prays to God his Father, he prays for our sanctification, praying that we would be made holy. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the first thing we must do as followers of Jesus is surrender to his word. In fact, you will never follow Jesus unless you first hear his word say, Come follow me. Unless you first hear him say, take up your cross and follow me, it won't be till you surrender to that word that you will surrender to him. So Jesus teaches the crowd of people from the boat. And it says that when he had finished, verse 4, he said to Simon, or Peter, whose boat he was sitting in, put out into deep water, and let down the nets for a catch. Now, just imagine, I, I assume thousands of people on the shore watching this, 
They think of Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi. Maybe some of them knew that he'd been a carpenter. They certainly knew he wasn't a fisherman. Then they hear Peter say in uh, somewhat of a complaining tone, after Jesus says, you should let down your nets for a catch, and Peter's answer is, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. So here's the carpenter-turned-rabbi telling the fishermen how to catch fish. Notice Jesus said, not just let down your nets, try again. He said, let down your nets for a catch. Oh, you sure, Jesus? And so here's Peter uh, objecting. How do you object to someone? Peter had already met Jesus, I think, by this point. He had been sitting and listening to the teaching as well. Uh, they had encountered Jesus through John the Baptist early on in the Lord's ministry. You can see that in the Gospel of John. So he'd already encountered Jesus. He already had a respect for Jesus. And you can actually see that in his answer when he calls him Master. Master. So you hear his objection. We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. He's kind of saying, it's a bit of a waste of time, Jesus. But because you say so. We, we might want to critique Peter's attitude here, but the reality is Peter has got it perfectly right. His expectations may have been wrong. He may not have assumed that Jesus knew what he was doing. He didn't think he was going to catch anything. But in terms of his obedience, he had it exactly right. When is the last time in our own lives, as we hear the word of God come to us through reading it, through hearing it, through hearing it preached, and we hear the Spirit of God speaking to us, hopefully, and we said, because you say so. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not legalism. Whatever your idea of legalism is, some of you grew up in legalistic religious forms, that is not legalism. When you hear the voice of God speak to you, and you obey, that's not legalism. That is the safest, most wonderful place to be. And so Peter says, Master, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything, but because you say so. And so the second surrender is this. We surrender to his will. He is Lord. The word master here is the word Lord, sometimes used just casually. It's like saying sir, but often used dramatically for one who is divine. The apostles would come to call Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. And scholars would say that was their way of saying he is God. He is Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't think Peter understood all that yet. But he understood that Jesus was master. He understood through the word of Christ that he could submit and should submit his will to Christ. And he did because you say so. I wonder where our hearts are at this morning. First of all, the attitude that we come to God's word with. Are we responsive? Are we, do we have open ears? Jesus would often say when he taught, whoever has ears to hear, which is all of us, let them hear. It's the first question. Do we have ears to hear? Do we come and approach God and his word hungry, listening? And then the second is, as we hear God's word, do we have hearts to obey? Do we have soft hearts, pliable hearts that are responsive to the things that God calls us to do 
Or we know what the alternative is. We have hard hearts, hearts of stone, hearts that are not pliable, not responsive to the word of God as it comes to us. Peter demonstrated the right attitude. He surrendered his will to the will of Jesus. So, because you say so, I will let down the nets. Verse 6, And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Remember, uh, Peter had spent the whole morning here cleaning and mending those nets. Great. Now they're breaking again. They signaled to their partner, that would have been James and John, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats. Imagine that they pull this net in close to one of those boats and they're probably using buckets. They're bucketing, scooping up fish, tossing them into the boat. And they did, they continued to bring these fish into the boat until both boats, and these were large fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee, both boats began to sink. So what do you think if you're a fisherman? Peter had probably laid uh, late at night dreaming about this day. What if, what, imagine if we caught so many fish that we filled our whole boat. And they would dream perhaps about how they could uh, cure those fish with salt or get some people together and get them to the market quick so they could sell as many of them as possible. Cha-ching is what was happening here for these fishermen. They'd never had a catch of fish like this. And for people who made their living on fish, suddenly they are in the money. That's not what Peter was thinking about. Because in verse 8 it tells us that when Peter saw this, he fell. And you've got to picture this now because as far as we understand, Jesus is still in the boat. And now the boat is full of fish. So when it says that Jesus fell to his knees, picture it now, smell him, feel the slimy fish. He's kneeling in piles of fish at the feet of Jesus. And what does he say? Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. What a statement. What, what does it mean? I believe Jesus, Peter had already encountered Jesus, probably heard of, maybe seen some miracles. He'd been introduced to him through uh, John the Baptist. He's heard him teach now. And now he sees a miracle that blows his mind. And when he falls before Jesus confessing sin, what does that mean? It means that Peter, in that moment and in that miracle, identified that Jesus was more than a carpenter. He was more than just a great teacher. That he was divine. He fell before someone that he came to understand as even more than a holy prophet. This must be God. And remember later, Peter would say when asked, who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter could later say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which for a Jewish person was to identify Jesus as divine. The divine Messiah, the divine son of God. And that is what has just happened in Peter's mind. He gets it all of a sudden and realizes that this man who looks so human 
is actually so much more and he falls in reverence, in humility, in repentance, in shame, recognizing that he's not worthy to be in the same boat as Jesus. And in all seriousness, I really believe this, he's, he's literally saying this to Jesus, you need to get away from me. And what he means by that, he's not saying, I don't like you. He's saying, I'm not worthy to be near you. You are God. And what does he say of himself? I'm a sinful man. Now, number three is this, surrender to his grace. It doesn't seem like Peter's surrendering here. It seems like he's recognizing, I'm not worthy. Uh, Jesus, I wish I could be with you, but I can't be with you. You're holy, you're God, I'm a sinner. So you're just gonna have to leave me alone. And the follow-up to that is Jesus saying to him in verse 11, 10, don't be afraid. And what happens is Jesus, instead of running away from Peter, or Jesus, instead of casting Peter aside, he says to him, don't be afraid, and invites him into his own mission, into his own space. And so what we find in this is a beautiful picture of this third thing that we must do, and that is that we must surrender to the grace of Jesus Christ. Peter came to know this in a kind of a backward way. First of all, recognizing I'm not worthy to be with Jesus and then finding that Jesus would be the one who would make him worthy. And that is the process that every one of us have to come to. You see, you can't actually even be saved. You can't even become a Christian until you first recognize how sinful you are, how unworthy you are to be a child of God. You have to come to that point. But then you have to also understand that God in his love is reaching out to you in spite of yourself and myself, in spite of your sinfulness, and he's saying, I want you. I have a plan for you. I actually have, I've provided redemption for you through my son and his cross. So we begin by recognizing I am so unworthy, but then we find in Jesus this gracious and merciful Savior who says, come to me, I'll actually save you and forgive you from your sins. And that is what the sinner Peter found. He surrendered to the grace of Jesus. First step was falling before him in the boat, confessing that he was a sinful man. The second step we're about to see when he chose to follow Christ as his savior. Surrender to his grace, he forgives. The miracle of the fish is amazing. These fishermen were amazed, I'm sure, and we, we don't, there's no reference to the crowd after the initial verses. But you know, you just gotta know, I think the Gospels invite us to read between the lines and think about what it was like for them. Would you have left if the carpenter turned rabbi told the fisherman how to fish? This man who speaks truth and they're gonna go out a little ways from shore, I'm watching, I'm sticking around to see this. So these crowd of people not only heard the word of God, they saw the word of God in all of its power as Jesus did this great miracle, amazing miracle. Verse 9 tells us that Peter and his companions were astonished 
at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. And I would argue that the, the most shocking and surprising moment of the story now comes in verse 11, where it tells us that these fishermen pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, everything, and followed him. I mean, we don't need any more details to be blown away by what just happens here in this verse. We've already been told that these fishermen have the catch of a lifetime. They had always made their living as adult men by catching fish, and now Jesus has given them the catch of a lifetime. This was the opportunity for them to get ahead, to buy a new, bigger boat, to hire more men, maybe to retire early. And yet, they do what is crazy. This is crazy. In our culture, in our day, who does this? Which of us does this? Pulling these boats, not just the boat, not just the, the torn nets, but the fish that God had given them that were worth so much money to them pulled up and left behind. And that's why we finish with this last surrender, which pretty much covers it all, doesn't it? Because we must surrender all for Christ. I would argue that this story is not simply a story that should amaze us and think, well, how great Peter and Andrew and James and John, I wish I had faith like that. Why did Luke write this into the gospel? Number one, he was teaching us who Jesus was and he's showing us through the lens of the eyes of these fishermen as they came to understand that Jesus was God. The reader comes to understand that Jesus is God. But the response of these men in verse 11 is also highly applicable to all who would say, I want to follow Jesus. Luke was writing to his friend Theophilus. And I would argue that Luke's desire is that Theophilus could come to see Jesus as being so great, so worthy, that he too would surrender his whole life to Jesus Christ. This is what we are called to do, and the reason this makes sense is because Jesus is worthy. Every one of us, moment by moment as we live our lives, are demonstrating value. The way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money is demonstrating what we value. Another way of saying that is the way we spend our time and the way we spend our money demonstrates what we worship. And the amount of time and the amount of money that we put towards those things demonstrate the degree to which we worship or deem them worthy. Have we come to understand that Jesus Christ is so worthy that anything short of everything falls far short of his worth? Have we come to understand that? Have we viewed Christianity as a form of religion whereby I've come to Jesus as my Savior and then I go on and live my life the way I choose 
Sunday mornings are a time when I come and appease that religious part of my life, that compartmentalized, uh, compartmentalized part of my life where I do my Christian duty, but then I go and live my life as I choose for myself? Or have we come to understand that Christianity is calling us to see Jesus for who he really is? And when Scripture says that we are saved by faith, the most beautiful way we demonstrate our faith, or better said, that we trust Christ is by surrendering our life to him. I mean, who do you trust most? Oh, here's a person I know. Here's a person I trust. I'll, I'll trust you with, with $10. But here's Jesus. I can trust you with everything. You say, really? Like, give up everything? It's not possible. Like, I gotta live. And so I ask, what happened to those fish? Surely you've asked that question if you've read this story. What happened to the fish? Does God waste? Did God do this miracle of filling two boats with fish and they got pulled up on shore and rotted? Is that what happened? Of course not. Because there were so many occasions when a large crowd gathered when Jesus was out in the region of the Sea of Galilee when they came to hear him teach and, and perhaps receive a miracle and Jesus had compassion on them and did what? He fed them. How is it that we could trust and surrender everything in our lives to Christ? And the answer comes in this. That when we surrender all to Christ, we find in him all that we need. And it's not just physical stuff. It's not just food, although, praise God, he provides that. He cares about that. When we surrender all to Christ, we find that he provides for us all that we need. Do you remember the first time Jesus did one of those other kinds of feedings? The ones we know were miraculous, where the little boy had the lunch and the five loaves and the three, three fish, two fish. And how many baskets were left over after Jesus had fed thousands and thousands of people one for each disciple we can trust our lives to Jesus we can do what he's asked us to do we can surrender all because he is worthy and because he will provide all that we need imagine for a second that you open your mail tomorrow and you you find in the mail this unexpected prize that you've won just by being you. And the prize is you get to go to Walmart tomorrow over here at St. Jacob's and it's one of those store grab things. You can, whatever you can carry out of the store, you can have. And so you go through the store. Oh, there's some beef jerky. I'd like one of those. And you begin to fill your arms. No cart. Can't take a cart. It's just whatever you can carry. Oh, I needed some socks. I, what, what else is there? There's all kinds of stuff at Walmart. And then suddenly you see the 60-inch TV. Or maybe the lazy boy. 
don't think they sell lazy boys, but maybe they should. And you realize that the only way to have that is to drop all of this. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the story of the Bible. That is why also in the Gospel of Matthew 13, chapter 13, Jesus told this simple little story. He said, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man who's going for a walk through a field, and he notices buried in the, in the dirt of that field, he uncovers it, he sees something there, he uncovers it, he realizes, oh my goodness, someone has buried a huge treasure in this field. So he covers it back up again. Goes home, gets his finances in order, sells everything he has, which is just barely enough that he can go to the landowner and say, I'd like to buy your field. Yep, yeah, I got enough. Sells everything. And in turn, for all that he gave up, he now owns the greatest treasure. Brothers and sisters, that's Christianity. I don't know if you understood it in a different way. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We find in Jesus our all in all. We find in Jesus all that we could ever need, and we give up all. So what does that mean? You're supposed to go home today and sell everything and empty your fridge and well, maybe. Is that okay? If somehow the voice of God spoke to you, and, and actually Jesus did this, there was a rich guy where Jesus specifically, he didn't do this with everyone, but there was the one rich guy in the Gospels who came and said, what should I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said exactly that. Sell everything. Because he knew in that man's heart, his trust was in his money, his worship was in his money. The only way for him to become a follower of Jesus was to get rid of the idols. What if? What if you sense the Holy Spirit inviting you to go to the mission field? I always told people, I hope God calls me to Africa rather than Toronto. I'd rather go to Africa. What if God called you to do something, to, to go somewhere, to be part of some ministry that required you have to give up everything that you know now? Would you say yes to Jesus? When Jesus invites us to take up our cross and follow him, he's inviting us, he's calling us to surrender. And that is where we finish now as we move into communion, as we think of the cross the cross of Jesus, as well as the cross that he's called us to. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Some people have watered this down by saying, oh, well, being a disciple of Jesus is, is like a second tier. I mean, you can be saved, you can have eternal life and not be a disciple. Eh, that's not right. Because in the Great Commission, when Jesus sent his apostles into the world to preach the gospel, what did he say? Go make disciples. Not converts who will pray a prayer and think I got my ticket. The call to global evangelism, to salvation, is be disciples. And Jesus gives this explanation. This is what it looks like to really trust in Christ for salvation is that you surrender all. To see a person in those days carrying a cross was to see a person who has their death sentence, who's about to lay down their life. Jesus taught this 
in other ways. He said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the invitation of Jesus. In this case, we're finding that his death on the cross becomes a pattern for all who would follow him. His death, of course, was a redemptive death. He was the only one who could provide atonement and salvation for sinners. And yet it also is a picture of the life he's calling us to, which is a kind of death. Paul would go on and teach the very same thing in the scriptures. All of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. Do you see that the life that salvation offers us comes through this means, through death. First death, then comes life. First, Jesus had to die and be resurrected. And then for us to be his people requires that we die with him and then are resurrected. Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what it means to surrender our lives. This is what it means to repent. This is what it means to fall before Jesus in the boat and, and claim that we are sinful men and women. And the only hope for us is that we would die, that our old self, our old lives, we would die to that so that we can receive life through Jesus. In one of those occasions, in fact, this is the occasion when Jesus fed 5,000 according to John chapter 6, and Jesus used this startling metaphor for Jewish people who were never to eat or drink blood. And yet Jesus told them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. The one who feeds on me will live because of me. So we take the bread and the juice today. Recognizing these are symbols of the death of Jesus. But the only way for us to receive the life, the resurrected life of Jesus, is number one, that we would die as he died. Number two, that we would receive him. We would receive him. I didn't emphasize it from verse 11, but it says they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. The only means by which we can ever live this kind of life is because of Jesus. We, we don't clean ourselves up and find this kind of commitment and then Jesus comes and provides us salvation. No, he provides us salvation as we're kneeling in the boat saying, I can't do it, I'm, I'm a sinful man. It's only as Christ comes and lives within us by faith that we receive the kind of life that allows us to surrender all. Don't get this in the wrong order. We are called to surrender all, but it's only through Christ that we can. So can I ask these three questions? Have you surrendered to the grace of Christ? What we're about to do here, brothers and sisters, is something that Christ has invited his people to do. We're gonna share this bread and juice together symbolically, and I wish we could all, we've got a little table here, but 
If only we could all gather around one table to understand that as we do this, we're feasting at the table of the Lord as family. And so we just want to remind you that if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you could say that, that you haven't chosen to follow him, that you're not part of God's family, then we would ask you to refrain. But I would also tell you that you're invited to that table. Don't hear me say this morning that you can't have this because you can. In fact, you can have it right now. If you've never trusted in Christ, but you recognize like Peter did, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, if you are ready to surrender to the grace of Christ this morning, then you may take this and let it be symbolic of what you're doing in your heart. That as you take this simple bread and juice into your body, you are receiving Jesus into your life and he is receiving you into his life. So you may do that today for the first time if you are ready to trust in Christ and surrender to his grace. Secondly, have you surrendered to the word of God? What's your heart attitude? And I hope that what you've seen today is not what I'm saying, but what God's word says. And have you surrendered? Or is there a wall building in your heart, a resistance, a hard-heartedness to the word of God? And number three, have you surrendered all for Christ? As I've said already, if you, like me, struggle and say, I don't know if I have, then understand this. It's as we, and only as we receive Christ, that we can be fully surrendered to him. He helps us do what we cannot do on our own. I'd like us to take a few moments and just reflect on these three questions or whatever the Spirit of God is saying to you. And then in a moment, I'm going to pray, and if you haven't taken your emblems, you may. Let's just take a time of reflection. Oh Lord, I pray that today, as we sang earlier, that you might open the eyes of our heart that we might see Jesus for who he really is. And even as we wrestle with this radical call to give up everything, Lord, far more than that, show us how worthy Jesus is, how trustworthy Jesus is, that we can give up our whole lives to him and find in that surrender all that we will ever need from now to eternity. Pray if anyone's never trusted in Christ that today might be the day when they respond and even, and even perhaps take these communion emblems as a symbol of their faith in Christ. And Lord, for those of your people here who've trusted in Christ, would you work in our hearts? Show us, Lord, what it means to surrender all. Help us, Lord, to be surrendered to your word, surrendered to your will. By your grace, Lord, might we surrender everything as the gospel becomes more and more real in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the bread and the juice representation of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. And it's only through him and his death that we have this opportunity to be saved. Oh, Lord, may we be all for Christ. Amen. Please take your emblems.